Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. How are you today, Kim? I'm doing all right. How are you, Mark? Very good, thank you. And I'd like to start today with an article found in 750.com about do celebrity wines sell or is it all marketing? Have you explored any wines by celebrities, Kim? I have had a few. I thought this was actually a very interesting topic because a couple of the ideas that were explored in this article were things that I've experienced myself and had happened to me as far as my own impressions of wines that are celebrity branded. So I actually thought that this kind of hit close to home for me. It was interesting that when they talk celebrities, they're talking sports, music, actors, could be TV, Mm. celebrities. Uh, What has been your experience of what have you explored in this? So the one that really I have a a bit of experience with tasting and then kind of, you know, knowing the backstory is a a rosé called Miraval, which is from a property that is owned by Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. And I remember when this hit the market about, I don't know, five, six years ago, there was a lot of sort of hubbub about it because not only is it owned by these famous people, but the winemaking team behind it had have a lot of experience and are very highly regarded in the industry. And and I, the wines came into the store for us to taste and I kind of rolled my eyes and I'm like, oh, great, you know, but I begrudgingly liked the wine. So I have to say that even though it did sort of come to us with uh, kind of this baggage of having faith famous people associated with it. Uh, The quality was actually really good. So that whole thing was sort of mentioned in this article that when wine pros were blind tasted on this wine, they all really liked it. But we were sort of predisposed to not like it because it had this this sort of celebrity cachet with it too. And that's been in the news lately because when they got divorced, there was all this talk about who was going to get control of this Mm -hmm. vineyard that they share. So uh, that's a great example. Is this more of partnerships in wine that... these celebrities or these people usually are not the winemakers. They're investing. They're partners with famous winemakers right. most of the time. It's like they're adding their name and their recognition to the label as a bit of a, I would say, a, a marketing element. And it's sort of interesting to look at it. what's in the bottle. Is it st- is it quality wine? Is it more commercially produced wines? What is the impact of having this celebrity's name on the bottle? Is that helping sales or is it hurting sales? So like you said, when you're approached with something by a famous famous celebrity, you're you're questionable. Why? You know, why are they doing this? Why should I try this wine? Unless you're a big fan and you want to support them in some way, it it is kind of, to me, a kind of a marketing trick Mm -hmm. to get people to drink wine. Um, One of the more popular things in this is a brand by Francis Coppola. And it's got to be one of the more popular celebrities that a lot of people know he's out there. You know, what's interesting is that I, I wouldn't have put two and two together and think that the Coppola brand is a celebrity 
celebrity branded wine. I, I never even have considered it that way, maybe because it's been around for so long. And he bought a historic vineyard, the old Inglenook Vineyard in California, and has his team has been making wine there for a really, really long time. And they've got a, a museum, a movie museum on the property, and they do tours. And it's this well-established thing. So I, I didn't even think of that one as a celebrity wine. I'm like, oh, yeah, the Coppola wine. Yeah, and I think we funny. get a refresher every time he comes out with a, a new wine because he it's all cinema memorabilia right. on it. Um, so you, you get refreshed when, these, oh, yeah, this guy's in the movie business. But yeah. he's a very popular uh, celebrity that has a huge uh, line out. I think the other one for me, people probably don't know, is Rodney Strong. He was a ballerina. Really? you say for a man? Ballerina? Ballerina? Um, Ballo- no, you just, I think you just call him a ballet dancer. Ballet dancer. Yeah. Yeah, so he was famous for dancing, and that's a very popular line. I did not know that. And lately, though, I, I'm seeing more of the sports people mm-hmm. get into it. And and for us, Drew Bledsoe, uh, Patriots quarterback, uh, he has probably a very popular brand going around. And it's good wine. He it's very good wine. He's a famous winemaker, so he, he's invested. A lot of these other celebrities maybe just, just want to get their name out and don't really, I don't know if they don't care about the product. But it's probably not as good a quality as as the Bledsoe product. Right. I remember being very pleasantly surprised when I tasted the Drew Bledsoe wine the first time. It was the first or second vintage. So it was right at the beginning of when that was released. And and it carries a hefty price tag. It's not an inexpensive wine. And it's pretty good stuff. The one uh, that people ask me about often is the um, the Dave Matthews Band wine, yes. which is called Dreaming Tree. I know a lot of restaurants have that one, their wine lists. So that's one that is a, a standout in my mind for these sort of celebrity brands. And I've never had it, so I don't know the quality level of it, but it does seem to be that there are varying levels of quality and that you never can tell if just because there's a famous person's name on the label, I don't really think that that tells you too much about the quality of the wine in the bottle. Most of them are backed by a bigger wine corporation, so you have to question the quality at times. Mm -hmm. There are some small, like Sting produces a very small Italian winery that he produces that he puts his name, well, it's not on the label but he's behind it right um you got zach brown who has z alexander valley he makes a, a wine as well or produce puts his name on a wine so i think there's a, a big difference between the people that putting their name on it and the people you have to kind of dig into mm-hmm. to find out who's backing the product so it's kind of like anything with wine right you know is it really that the label is telling you that it's from a real place and that there's you can kind of get to know the the people who are making the wine and growing the wine or is it this sort of product name on there that is trying to maybe fool you a little bit that it is vineyard site or a specialty winery or whatnot. Yeah, that's our Google trick. And and I do that a lot to find out the stories behind these celebrity wines. And and actually, if you go to Wikipedia and you put in celebrities who make wine, it comes up with a, a list and what the product they, they back. So it's very interesting search if you have time to do that. An interesting thing that was brought up in this article as well was the idea of do these wines actually sell? And is having some someone's name, who's a famous person, does that help with the sales? And who is actually doing the buying? So it seemed to me that through some of their uh, research for this article, they found that especially for the sports stars, those were really only appealing to 
people that were big fans of those particular players, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, and as a retailer, I've been burnt with this a, a lot, a lot of times. I don't know if you remember way back, Martha Stewart had a TV show, and she came out with her own wines, and they did not. I thought people were following Martha Stewart, people would be all over this, and it did not take off. But then a few years later, the Food Network. I don't know you. You watch Food Network a lot, I'm sure, Kim. They were in their kitchen. They would put these bottles of wine on their counter, and every one of them was their wine. It said Food Network. So I mm-hmm. said, well, people are going to see this, and they're going to want this wine. They partnered with Wente Vineyards in California, so a very good winery, and the wine was quite good. Uh, and I thought for sure people seen it all the time, and it just didn't take off as well. So yeah, I remember a similar thing with um, the TV show Top Chef that they had a particular brand of wine, and they were very very actively promoting it, you know, whenever they would do their tastings at the ends of every episode. The, the winery was sponsoring that and they were always on the table and they were talking about them all the time. And the wines really did not sell very well in the store. So I thought that was pretty interesting too. So what do you think about, I know you're a big Game of Thrones fan. <laughs> now they came out with a Game of Thrones series of wines. They did and I haven't had them yet. See, now you're a fan. <laughs> See, there's a good point because you're a fan and you haven't run out to buy them. No, so I, I w- but I have run out to buy the beers. Oh, well, yeah, those have been out for a while. <laughs> so now we have the Game of Thrones, we have the Walking Dead TV right. series, which you can do augmented reality with the labels. So they're looking to get people to buy this product based on a fan base. Right. So one of the other things I thought, we're getting back to the sports, Bledsoe's wine, his top end wine costs about $125. So I always joke with people to say, when Tom Brady comes out with a wine, what would you pay for it? Right. <laughs> if we're paying $125 for Drew Bledsoe, I think Tom Brady could get, what, 500 for for a bottle if he came out with it? I think it would have to depend on how good that wine is. I mean, maybe if it was a signed bottle, then maybe you yeah. could get a lot more money for it because then it would be more of a collector's item. But oh, He has to talk to us because TB. 12 he's got the brand right? <laughs> i think he would sell a ton of wine and he likes wine so and y- you mentioned signed but when bledsoe i think it was 2007 was his first vintage he only made like 300 cases and he numbered each bottle now he makes 3,000 cases and that numbering is totally gone so you can tell <laughs> as they build up they kind of get away from things sure You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. To find out more information about Mark, please visit his website at franklinliquors.com. And for more information about me and my business, you can visit me at vinitaswineworks.com. A question that we often get uh, from wine consumers when we're thinking about food and wine and cooking and wine is about the products that you'll see in the grocery store, sort of in the section for oil and vinegar that's labeled as cooking wine. And what should you cook with if you have a recipe that calls for wine. So we thought it would be interesting to explore this topic and to let you know that there actually is a difference between what you can buy in those quote unquote cooking wine bottles and and a better bottle of wine from the wine section. Yeah, big difference. Have you ever explored the cooking wines, Kim? I know years you're, you're and years ago when I was, I would say even probably a, a teenager or in my early 20s when I was just learning how to cook and have some recipes that called for wine. And yeah, I could go to the grocery store and buy it. And you don't have to be 21 to buy 
buy a bottle of cooking wine. Yeah, that's which is what interesting. I was say. You, yeah, yeah. I, and I, you know, I questioned that one time in the past because having a liquor license, I say, how can stores sell things that have alcohol and not have a license? Mm-hmm. And the response I got was, you would not want to drink it. Exactly. So then I'm like, okay, wh- why would you cook with it? Mm-hmm. Right. You don't want to drink it, but it's high alcohol and it's in a store without a license. Uh, it didn't make sense. To yeah, me. it's the same thing for like vanilla extract is also yeah, very alcohol high. based and you know hopefully people aren't drinking the vanilla extract just for the alcohol but in any case yeah so when I was like 19 20 years old and I had a recipe that called for wine to cook with I would go buy myself a bottle of that and I did not drink it but I did cook with it and then as I learned more about wine and learned more about food <laughs> and I was old enough to buy an actual bottle of wine I could move to the real stuff and notice what the, the big difference that it makes so cooking wine that you can find at the grocery store really is a much lower quality product and they add a lot of other things to it to discourage people from uh, consuming it as a glass of wine most notably salt yes yes I'm glad you brought that up and and that was one thing I was amazed at and and the biggest brand probably is Goya and if you go on their website they actually have a technical sheet I'm sure it's on the bottle as well I'm sure but the sodium level is huge and if you go to taste it that is the first thing that will stick out to you the Mm -hmm. overpowering amount of salt and it's uh, we, we talk all the time about don't you don't necessarily want to cook with a wine that you wouldn't drink. And sometimes I bend that rule a little bit and I'll use a bottle that's maybe been on my counter for a few days and it's been open. Uh, Maybe it's downhill as far as some of the fruit flavor or it's heading in the direction of becoming vinegar. And I'll still use that depending on what the what the dish is. But I, I still would encourage people to use wine that you wouldn't mind drinking for cooking, because if it's something like a pan sauce, you're reducing not only the fruit flavors of the wine and anything else that's in there, but you're going to highlight any problems in the wine as well. So a personal experience with this, I I was so interested in seeing if there was a difference. I reached out to the Moonlight Chef in, in Franklin. We piloted a cooking show, and the first thing we wanted to do was taste the difference between using cooking wine and a regular wine that I, I recommend. I recommended a like a Sauvignon Blanc with high acid to cook mm-hmm. with, and she prepared the dishes exactly the same, added the same amount of salt to each dish, and then we tasted them and had people taste them, see if there was a difference. And surprisingly, I didn't taste much of a difference when the finished food, but if you tasted this other the sauce, mm-hmm. it was a little more salt. Hmm. So it was a little bit less noticeable than maybe you would Then I expect. thought, yeah, I thought picking a varietal that was complementary to the dish, it was a like a citrus chicken dish that it would play better, but it actually, it wasn't overwhelmingly different, which shocked me. Hmm. So I wonder if having the balance of the right amount of salt in the dish, maybe there's more leeway, like you could get away with a little bit of extra salt without it making too big of, a, of an impact on the final flavor of the dish. I was kind of disappointed. Yeah, you I know, would be I too. Disappointed. So, you know, you go in with an idea of, hey, we're going to use the real stuff and then yeah. it turns around and uh, and you find that there isn't too much of a problem with it. The other thing about cooking with wine, Kim, that I get all the time, people will come in and they'll say, I'm cooking and one of the most popular wines in most recipes is they'll say burgundy cook with you need a burgundy wine so people come in i need a good burgundy to cook with i bring them over to the pinot noir and what happened they why am i looking at a pinot noir right do you get that i i I do get that used to get that one an awful lot and there is there it's interesting when we know a whole lot about the history of wine which sort of helps us to understand why things are labeled certain ways but if you're just looking at a recipe and it says burgundy of course you want to sort of follow what the recipe is 
is saying, but then you get to the wine store and there's all this other information that's being thrown at you and you're like, whoa, 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 I just want a bottle of wine to cook with. So the, the problem with Burgundy, the word Burgundy, and Burgundy is a region of France that has been making wine for hundreds and possibly thousands of years. And it was one of these styles that people understood and people recognized as being high quality. So when American wine producers started making wine again after Prohibition, they needed some labeling method to make people understand what the wine was kind of going to be about in the bottle. So they would use these names that have a basis in fine wine production in Europe and slap that name on their bottle. So we sort of developed a wine industry in California in the early days where there were all these names on the bottles that also had corresponding names in Europe that were fine wine. And then these California ones were a little lesser quality. And now you see them sort of as the jug wines. So I, I think that when people see Burgundy in a recipe, you know, it might be an old Julia Child recipe where, you know, maybe Julia was using a good bottle of Burgundy because the better wines that she was getting in the 1960s and the 1970s were fr still from France. We didn't have much of a fine wine industry in the U.S. at that point. I was thinking exactly that when people ask for Burgundy. It's probably something that's been around for a long time. Right. And it's just traditional. It's traditional. It's a, a traditional recipe of like, say, Cocovin, which required that the people in the area that were making it were all drinking burgundy. So of course, that's what you're going to cook with. And that has come down in our recipes as the traditional wine to use for it too. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily always have to because honestly, burgundy, like real burgundy these days is not inexpensive. It starts in what, the mid $20 range yeah, and then goes up yeah, from there. Yeah. So do you want to splurge on a $30 bottle just to put it in a casserole? You know, or probably not. show you a five liter jug of, of burgundy. Right. And, and then that's the other the side. Other. <laughs> it's the polar opposite where you have like big jugs of, can I say cheap wine for those? Inexpensive wine. <laughs> and then you have the opposite end where it's expensive fine wine from France. So there are options. So when your recipe calls for a specific wine, sometimes your local retailer can, can help you maneuver those waters of what wine should I use for this recipe. So what other cooking wine stories do you get a lot where I had the Burgundy example? Do yeah. you have something similar to that? I get a lot of more general questions of what wine should I use to cook with? And I have some general rules that I tend to tell people, uh, especially when it comes to white wines, I'll usually say nothing too sweet and nothing with oak. Because again, that concentration of flavors, you're not just concentrating the fruit flavors and concentrating the um, the acidity, but you're also concentrating the oak. So if you use a big oaky, buttery Chardonnay, you are going to get a lot of those flavors left over in your food. So what you're looking for is, I, I think, fresher fruit flavors and nice acidity. Because at the end of the day, that's what the wine is acting as. It's acting as one of your acids for balance in, in a sauce or in a soup or whatever. So a recipe might call for lemon juice or it might call for wine or it might call for vinegar, but it needs to be something that's going to stand up uh, and, and have that body to it. Yeah, I agree with that. The acid thing. And when I recommend Sauvignon Blanc, a lot of times people will question, you know, why? And I mm -hmm. always say for the acidity. I think two other examples I get a lot is masala and sherry. Sure. There's a lot of dishes out there that says, you know, you need a, a dry sherry or dry masala. And I'm finding a lot of people there's the, the entry-level California Marsalas and Sherry's. They're actually stepping up one price point when it comes to those two products. Do you, do you see that? For cooking with? For cooking, yes. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of people, when they are looking for, especially, I think, a Marsala for cooking with, they will go with, with the real deal. Real Marsala is actually pretty reasonably priced. There are some expensive drinking ones out there, but I think that you can get the real product for only a little bit more than the imitation from California. Yeah, you're talking a 
casting entry level six dollars a bottle and then you step up to a, a traditional it's like fifteen dollars yeah. so i appreciate that people step up to the next level because there is a, there is a little difference in quality and there's something about getting a product from the the origin of the product right and when you when you start to explore the the sherry side of this equation because you had mentioned sherry alongside marsala there is so much more variety when you are experiencing uh, authentic sherry from spain as opposed to a bottle of just generically labeled sherry from California. So if you get the real stuff from the south of Spain, you can have dry styles, you can have sweet styles. There are some that are nuttier. There are some that are more like dried fruit, raisiny flavors. So there are all these different styles and they're very interesting to learn about and interesting to explore. And some people like sweet and some people like dry. And the recipe will usually specify what style of sherry you should be looking for, whether it should be a sweet sherry or whether it should be a dry sherry. Yeah. And and a lot of people, exactly what you said, they'll say, I need a, a sweet. And a lot of the producers will put that in big, big, bold mm-hmm. letters on the on the label, and it helps yeah. sell that product. Especially for those dry ones, because I think if people are looking for a sweet sherry and they unexpectedly go home with a dry one and then they taste it, they're just like, wow, because that stuff is really, really dry. It's some of the driest wine on earth uh, because of its style of production. So it can be it can be a little bit of a shock to the system if you're expecting something with some sweetness to it. So what do you recommend? One of the, the other real popular questions I get, someone buys a sherry on Marsala. It's a, usually a 25-ounce bottle. So you're not using typically 25 ounces. And they'll ask, what do I do with this after? And mm-hmm. I always say it's a high alcohol. It's a fortified product. Put it in your cabinet. Keep it at constant temperature. It's fine to cook with that. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I keep my Marsala open in my liquor cabinet. I have no idea how long I've had that bottle of Marsala in there. And it's still fine because it goes through a little bit of an oxidative process anyway. So it's supposed to have some air exposure. And having a little bit more air isn't going to hurt it. When I do buy by dry sherries for cooking, I do keep those in the refrigerator because they're not really meant to be stored for too, too long open. They do tend to fall apart a little bit, but I find that keeping things cold after they've been opened does extend their shelf life. I do wish the producers would make smaller sizes. Like when you talk in vermouth, they make small because people use very little amounts of vermouth. But that but stuff lasts forever. Yeah, but masala <laughs> and sherries, the, the, the 25-ounce size is like the size. Yeah. So you, you feel bad when people want... You know, just a little to cook with, and that's what you have to sell them. So, mm-hmm. and they, and the other part of it is for restaurants, they sell you know kegs of it. So <laughs> I don't know why they don't go to the reach. You for know, making the, lots and lots of chicken marsala. Yeah, why don't they tailor to the consumer to push it a little more in a smaller size, a single serve size? Mm, that's very interesting. See, another invention. We had a couple. There today, we go. Right? Single single size for cooking for making your one uh, recipe of chicken marsala at home. Marsala in a can. Yes. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to find out more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our next topic is from inverse.com. It's a science website. And they were talking about the impact of climate on wine grapes. What was your take on this, Kim? I thought this was an interesting article, and this is something that I think about fairly frequently uh, when we talk about sort of climate change and certain areas uh, warming up. It does have a 
pretty substantial impact on the way that grape varieties can thrive in certain areas. So for some regions, it's been a positive, And then for other regions, it's been a negative. So someplace like, like Germany or central France, where there have been traditionally a lot of years that haven't produced very good grapes because either the weather was really wonky or it was too cold. Now we're having overall warmer vintages. So grapes can ripen more and it produces fuller bodied, more fruit forward, honestly, yummier wine, I guess you can say. But then on the flip side of that, you have areas that are now becoming just too hot to support grapevines. Uh, grapevines are very picky plants. They don't like it too hot. Uh, they need a good balance of water, but not too much. And as we see overall temperatures rising from year to year, there are going to be major impacts on places that we know that really fine wine comes from right now that in a few decades might not be able to support wine growth at all. Yeah, and people are probably thinking right now, wow, these guys are geeky, right? Because we like following this we, type yeah. of stuff and talking about it. But, but it has it, an impact on real life. Yeah. Like, you know what you like to drink and you know the styles of wine that you like to drink. And in 10 years, you might not be able to find those anymore. So like if you like really lean, I don't know, Rieslings from Germany or, you know, things from the northern reaches of Italy where you're going up into the mountains, you might not be able to find those styles anymore. And, and I think that that has a really big impact on how people view the world and their consumables and, and things like that. One of the things that was striking to me about this article was that it was talking about different grape varieties that are practically unknown to people now and how this is a problem in marketing because a lot of the wine grapes that people are familiar with and buy wine by the grape that they see on the label, those grapes might not be able to thrive as much and that there are other grapes that are more suited for warmer climates and for less rain or more rain depending on where you are, but that the market has to support the production and the sale of those wines in order for them to be successful. So the climate change is in the news all the time. And I think what opened my eyes to this was when I was seeing certain varietals grown in Canada. And then you look at the the temperature charts they have out and it's actually warming up as you go, you know, California, Washington, Oregon into, into Canada. And um, they're producing varietals they could never make before because of the climate change. So you had talked about the consumers. Do they, do you think a consumer when, when they buy a wine are thinking, okay, it's a Malbec, I shouldn't buy that from this region because they don't grow it there? No, I don't think so. I think the, I think it's more that maybe someday regions that grow wine might be too hot for Malbec and you'll see less Malbec and people are either going to pay more money for the Malbec that is available or they're going to have to switch to something else. So I no, no, I don't think that people see Pinot Noir in a label and say, ooh, that's Pinot Noir from such and such a place. I shouldn't be buying Pinot from that place because it doesn't grow Pinot particularly well. I think it's more familiarity and comfort with familiar styles of wine or grape varieties on the label that, that people are comfortable buying and changing the mindset of, okay, well, there are going to be these other grape varieties that maybe you should consider drinking. An interesting stat in this article was that there are only 12 grape varieties on the market that make up about 80% of the wine that is consumed. And I thought that that was sort of semi-mind-blowing for me. Yeah, and the, the experts will always say the, the, the region matters. So you should know that that grape is known for that region. We talk about Burgundy and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I'm not sure, you know, nowadays, you for example, let's look at sparkling wines. England is becoming a very popular region. Now, is that due to, to climate change, you feel, Kim? I do. Th this was, you just mentioned you are uh, thinking of grape varieties growing in Canada that have never been able to be grown there before. My 
epiphany moment for that topic was was England and the sparkling wines that are being produced there. And they kind of have always made a little bit of wine in southern England, but now with the weather being warmer and this is a, a more established area for viticulture that is now producing consistently good wines, vintage in and vintage out. And I had my first one a couple of months ago and I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised by the, the quality of the product. And I think we're going to see more of that. You know, I think we're going to see more wines being grown in areas that traditionally had been too cool to grow grapevines that are now producing wine. And eventually places like Napa, places like Sicily, places like Puglia are just going to be too hot and just aren't going to be able to support it. So to me, that shows that consumers are adapting to climate change, but don't know about climate change. Does that make sense? They don't They don't know the reason why they're changing their they're seeing, consumption habits? Yeah, well, they're seeing an English sparkling now out on the market. But I don't know how many people are going to pick up a bottle of English sparkling when, they, when the option is Prosecco or Champagne. I think there needs to be that educational awareness behind it, but and not why? necessarily the reason why, although I try to always kind of throw that in there when I'm using a product that is newer to the market like that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would approach that, I guess, as saying the climate would affect the flavor of, of the varietal. So you, you have to look at where it's from. Does or it... I, I would use it as a, I know that you're not familiar with this. We've never had it before. This is the first time it's been on our market because, you know, there's never been that much of it or this is a direction that winemaking is now going. But for something like sparkling wine, it's a little bit of an outlier too because people don't tend to pay attention to the grape variety, I think, in the sparkling wines, you know, because it's more of, people are looking for the style. They're looking for the bubbles. They're looking for that kind of celebration aspect. So I think it's less important. What is the variety that's making up the sparkling wine? I mean, how many people ever ask you what's in your cava? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, you know, Prosecco is less understood, I think, as a grape um, than it is as a style of wine. You know, I don't think that too many people think about the grape variety that goes into their champagne. They just know that it's champagne. I must admit, I, I love when someone shows me a varietal from a region. I'm like, how are they growing? that there and I have to mm. the geek in me is like I have to try it <laughs> and then I'm like know. oh I see now I see why I shouldn't be drinking that <laughs> oh, from that no. region well, do you have a recent experience but, well like many times about? I mean recently I, I just brought in a Malbec from New Zealand and it was the first time I've ever seen Malbec oh grown in New Zealand I recently saw um, Pinot Noir grown in Lodi which you oh, see wow. very few yeah I was but just they, reading about Merlot from Germany too which you don't see a whole lot of heavier red grapes grown in Germany at all yeah I mean, it's just strange things like that. Like you're talking Germany. I've seen Pinot Noir from Germany. You don't see it often, so you want to explore it and offer something different, but um, explore. And sometimes it's, you're very pleasantly surprised. So I like to encourage people to experiment a little bit and just don't be so afraid of trying something new because you might be totally pleasantly surprised. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. And if you want to learn more about what we do and about our show, visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Wine, wine, wine.